you don't want fairness in the kingdom of God. Because fairness gets Jesus off that cross. It's not fair for him to die. Fairness will land you right in the pit of hell. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. Sometimes it's easy to come into a church with routine, go through the motions. Some of us have been doing for years. But we need to be reminded from time to time that the altar of God is open to those who will come. Over and over, the scripture says, come. And if God is dealing with your heart in this time and in this moment, who but knows that he has placed you in here for such a time as this. So you come as the Lord leads. Second Samuel chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. I don't know if you heard, about 20 years ago, a high school student decided to conduct an experiment at his science fair by circulating a petition warning about the dangers of dihydrogen monoxide. Dihydrogen monoxide. Here's what he, he said about it. He found out that it could cause severe burns. It could accelerate the corrosion and rusting of many metals. And it had been found in the excised tumors of terminal cancer patients. And despite these risks, he noted, the chemical is often used as an industrial solvent and coolant in the production of styrofoam and as a fire retardant. He scared half the school to death. Why are we using this substance? Well, dihydrogen monoxide, for the chemist in the room, which I am not, has another element on the periodic chart. It is known as H2O, what we commonly refer to as water. You know, sometimes the danger for us is we can become so familiar with that which we're connected that we really develop some misconceptions about it. And I think that's no more true than in our thoughts about who God is. A God with whom we can have a personal relationship, a God to whom we can cry out and call, but a God who is also set apart, who's holy, who's just. And lest we become overly familiar with him in a world that says, the man upstairs, the big guy in the sky. The Bible rather has a warning for us. Second Samuel 6, and beginning in verse 1, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. He arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel went celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor at Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? 
So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. How you view God determines absolutely everything about you. How you view God will determine how you live, how you act, and ultimately where you end up. After seven years of civil war, David is finally able to celebrate by returning to Jerusalem. And after the exile of the ark, he decides that it is time to bring back the holiest representation in all of Israel. You remember 22 years earlier, the Philistines had stolen the ark of God, but when they got it, they were filled with sores and sickness and they took it in their own temple and Dagon, the God, false God that they had in their temple, his, his nose began to fall off and it, the statue began to decay. And finally the Philistines said, you can have it back. They put it on a riderless cart with two oxen and it headed in the direction of Israel. Stopped in the house of a man by the name of Abinadab and for 20 years sat there, not in Jerusalem, not in the tabernacle, not in the future temple, but in somebody's basement. A number of years ago, my dad and I went on a trip to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and on the way we stopped with a new business associate of his who was in the habit of collecting Christian Bibles and Christian resources. These were not any Bibles and resources. Dad said, I want you to take a look at this. I didn't know what was taking place. Introduced us to the owner, really nice guy, took us back into a room of an old bank safe, opened the bank safe up, and inside were more old books than I had ever seen in my life. You know, when people often refer to the King James Bible, they're actually referring to a modern translation. But the real 1611 King James Bible is enough to take over this pulpit. In fact, part of the reason the pulpits are made to the size they are is in the 15 and 1600s, they would open up that big Bible and put it on the pulpit, symbolizing this is where we get our doctrine. This is the word of truth. Well, to give you some perspective, there are approximately 300 uh, first edition King James Bibles known to exist in the world. This guy had 50 of them in this bank room. He had the only privately held edition of Pilgrim's Progress in the world, 13 first editions. He had the one privately owned, one of two first edition of Fox's Book of Martyrs, and what is called the Wicked Bible. If any of you know the, the Wicked Bible, there's about 10 of them printed in 1630. And when they began to list the commandments, there was a typo on one of those commandments. And rather than writing, thou shalt not commit adultery, it said, thou shalt commit adultery. So after about 10,000 printings, they took care of the guys who printed it and punished them pretty good. 
You know, what occurred to me when he was showing us all these collections, all these treatises, I thought, this is probably millions of dollars worth of stuff. And I asked him about it afterwards, and he said it was probably within the range of 7 to $10 million worth of collections. I said, you know, I wish that this stuff wasn't behind a bank vault. It needs to be on display for the people to see. This is good stuff. And if you think about all of those artifacts being held behind a bank safe, can you imagine the ark of God, the place in which the commandments of the Lord, the rod of Aaron and a pot of manna to remind the people of where they came from were held sitting in somebody's basement. I mean, in the corner of somebody's house for 20 years. And so when David is finally able to make peace in Israel and he brings all the people together, he says, I'm going to get together 30,000 men and we're going to go knock on Abinadab's door and Abinadab's going to return the ark to us and we're going to have a celebration all the way down to Jerusalem because that which has been misplaced is now put back in its place. That representation of that ark, four feet by two feet by two feet with the mercy seat on top. The cherubim, the holy angels surrounding it, the very presence and manifestation of God. Joshua needed it when he marched around Jericho, needed it when they crossed over the Jordan River. Just the very presence of the ark of God meant so much in the kingdom of Israel. And now they've gone to get it. It's been stored And as Abinadab goes to get it out, he knows there's some regulations with it. When they carried it, they were to push it within the rings, the poles. No one was to touch the ark. And the ones who were to carry it by the poles were supposed to be the the Levites, the priest of Israel. And as Abinadab's sons, Ahio and Uzzah, begin to drive it out on a cart rather than carry it on a pole, the Bible tells us that Ahio, one of the sons, went before the ark. He's in front of it. And as that ark begins to descend down the hill from the top of Abinadab's house, David and all of Israel are celebrating this day. He's got the band out. He's brought songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets, whatever those are, and and cymbals. He's got it there. And and I would tell you in, in the house of God, sometimes we're so stiff, it's not wrong to party. You just got to party at the right things and in the right way. It's what David's doing here. After all the sorrow and grief of the last two decades, finally, there could be a united Israel. They come up to the threshing floor and Uzzah notices something. He he sees the oxen are about to stumble and he thinks to himself, maybe with the best of intentions on planet earth, or at least in, in his mind, he reaches out to catch the ark. You know, in our culture, if the flag's not supposed to touch the ground, how much greater in the culture of Israel Should we care for the ark? Maybe that's what he's thinking. So he puts out his hand to steady the holiest representation in all of Israel. And it makes God mad. In fact, the Bible says the anger of the Lord was kindled. It set him on fire and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died beside the ark of God. Talk about ruining somebody's parade. Talk about killing the life of the party. And I got to tell you, 
For somebody who's already jacked up in their view of God, or for somebody who decides that they don't believe in God, more often than not, they will point at stories like these and say, the God that you serve is a tyrant. He overreacts. And for just a second or two, David thinks the same thing. In fact, he's angry. And he says, if this is going to happen, I'm going to leave the ark where it is. I won't even carry it. The one who had a heart after God, it says that David was afraid of the Lord that day. Isn't he supposed to be a God of grace and mercy? I can tell you the timetable of what Uzzah had thought about. He had grown up in that house, probably saw it sitting there for 20 years, knew at least something about what the ark was about. Maybe he had gone to worship the Lord. Maybe he had put his money in the offering plate. Maybe every once in a while he did a good deed. And sometimes he would just do something nice and say, God, you can owe it to me later. And in this moment of time, he decides to help God out. But when you don't do God's will, God's way, trouble is always coming. I'm not talking about doing the church things, things the church way, where we use committees and business meetings and we take three or four years to change a light bulb. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about doing things God's way, which always involves prayer and spiritual discernment and obedience to the word. And if you're honest with yourself, it's a very difficult story to interpret, is it not? It reminds me of what happens to Moses towards the end of his life, after he's led the children of Israel out of bondage on the brink of the promised land, after he's stood in front of Pharaoh, after he's declared the word of the Lord, he's struck the rock, waters come out, man has flowed for the people. And now God says to him, this time I want you to speak to the rock. Moses becomes angry against the people. He's always talking about how much they complain. Pastors and preachers and people in the the church, you think you've heard some complaints. Think about two million complaints every single day. That's what Moses endured. And at the end of it, he just got fed up because the people were complaining again, saying, why can't we go back to Egypt, in which they were in bondage, by the way. And in his anger and his frustration, rather than speaking to that rock, he struck it for the second time. Water comes out. God pulls Moses aside and says, you won't go into the promised land. And Moses says, really? God says, you're out. That's tough. And if you think anywhere near like I do about life in Christ, the temptation is always, always to justify the actions Nobody else was going to get the water, Lord, so I'd do it even if I didn't do it quite the way you told me to. Nobody else was going to stand there and catch that ark. Somebody had to do it. I'm the only one doing something about it, Lord. But the problem with Uzzah here, it isn't that he takes the ark of God too seriously. It's that he doesn't take it seriously enough. He respects tradition. But he doesn't understand holiness. And I would submit to you that this wasn't the first time that Uzzah violated the laws of God. It isn't about him breaking a rule and regulation. It's about he doesn't understand who he's worshiping. He doesn't understand who he's serving. Because when you enter into the presence of the Lord, you have good reason to be afraid. 
Isaiah said, woe is me for I am undone and I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. Peter, after he saw the miracle of the Lord who could calm the waves and heal the people, he said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Uzzah thought he knew how to act, but he didn't know how to worship. You know what keeps me up at night? Besides my next door neighbor blaring his music. It's not usually worries about the church or about life. Sometimes that's there. You know what keeps me up sometimes? Is when I think about the judgment seat of Christ. I don't worry too much about whether or not I'm going to get in. If God were to say to me, you don't deserve to get in, you're out. I would say, Lord, I agree with you and I understand. But by the grace of God, he's made a way for me through his son, through his cross and his resurrection. Now, what I often think about is that every one of us will give an account of the things which we have done, whether good or bad. And we will stand before the Lord, all of us, every idle word, every careless thought. You know, back in the age when email addresses were really popular, I don't know how many of you Remember American Online, you have to be a certain age when the dial-up internet would, would come and you would hear all the noise and sometimes it would connect. And then for my generation, before text messaging came about, we had AOL Instant Messenger. I had a screen name. Everybody was using pseudonames, cool names. My name was Herbert 400. That was what I used. I don't know why I chose the name Herbert, but I did. And I had an email address which I, I copied off my dad. It was from Yahoo. His poor Gmail came into place. And the email that my dad had was godsees at yahoo.com. And I thought, I like that. And so I changed mine, edited mine to God sees all. And over the years, when temptations have come about, when I've been about to purchase something, really I probably shouldn't purchase budget-wise. I mean, there's been temptations all over the Internet, which many of us encounter that email address often reminds me that there is a God who sees, there's a God who knows the thoughts and conditions of our heart. Sometimes you come at this passage and you think to yourself, man, this isn't fair. Moose was just trying to help. Why did you strike him out? It doesn't seem right. This whole notion of fairness in our culture is so contrary to how God views fairness. So our culture says, treat everyone the same. But the truth is, we don't treat everyone the same. A good teacher knows this. Different people learn differently, and so you treat people where they're at. Now, all people are equal before God, and all people are worthy of the same dignity before God. And so we treat everyone with the same level of respect as an image bearer of the Lord. But this whole notion of fairness, Jesus spoke to thousands. He had 12 at the end of the day. Paul feeds some with milk and others he feeds with meat because they're not ready for it. And when you say it's not fair, we often react in unhelpful ways. I don't know if you saw this past week. It's been a controversial few weeks, obviously, in our country with the Supreme Court nominations, wherever you land on that. But this past week, there was a set of parents that had their kids in a Senate office building ready to catch one of the senators, and they got this on video. They asked the senator, they said, can you please apologize to our children for ruining their future? And the senator said something along the lines of, your parents are, are manipulating you without calls, something to that manner. But I thought, regardless of where you land on the political aisle, 
to blame the future of your child's life, everything going wrong on someone else, if you do that, you are raising children who will never take responsibility for their actions and who will always look for someone else to blame. See, you don't want fairness in the kingdom of God. Because fairness gets Jesus off that cross. It's not fair for him to die. Fairness will land you right in the pit of hell. We have no idea how close we are to breaking fellowship with God. And we also have no idea how much he desires fellowship with us. Contrast Uzzah's mistake here with David's response. In 2 Samuel 5.19, he begins, the Bible tells us that David inquired of the Lord. He said, God, what do you want me to do? Heaven forbid we would ever ask God, what is it he wants us to do? And then to respond in obedience to him. And in 2 Samuel 5.25, Scripture affirms, David did as the Lord commanded him. And so now here's David in 2 Samuel 6. He's afraid of the Lord that day. Now he asks in 6.9, how can the ark of God come to me? He doesn't even move it into the city. He places it outside in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed the household. So he can't get it in Jerusalem, the holy city. And so he places it in the house of someone who isn't even a citizen. He's outside of Israel. And God blesses him anyway. And finally, after three months, it dawns on David. After he hears of the blessing of the ark on Obed's house, he brings it to him with rejoicing because he sees that God is now ready for the ark to come. And that it won't just be a blessing to the children of Israel, but to everyone who will later call upon the name of the Lord. And so when David begins to bring it into the kingdom of Israel, every six steps he sacrifices something. That's why the mercy seat's there, showing without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the Bible tells us that David did something that wasn't very Baptist. He danced before the Lord with all his might. Say what you will about David, but when he did something, he did it with everything he had. He did it wholeheartedly. David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of God with shouting and with the sound of the horn. I want you to see two responses that David has when things don't go the way he thought they would go. Number one, their spirit trembling. Man, we have to come before God, not in a casual way, but to acknowledge who he is. There's fear and trembling, but then there's praise. He thanks God for what he's done. See, here, here's Uzzah's ultimate problem. He's religious, but he isn't godly. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. Sometimes I think that all religious sites should be posted with signs reading, Beware of God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend to God are dangerous. They're glorious places and occasions, true, but they're also dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. Religion is the death of some people. Some of us today are worried all about people's outer garments when we ourselves are not daily clothed in Christ. Some of us know the traditions well, but we've forsaken the commandment of the love of God because of our tradition. Some of us will honor the Lord with our lips and maybe even lend a helping hand when our hearts are far from Him. 
And I like how one writer puts it. He says, Uzzah died the moment he thought he could keep God safely in a box. You can't put him in your box. So we come to him knowing that he is far above everything. That the angels surround him. That when men and women encounter the living God, the very first thing they do is fall down to their knees. But we also come to him in a different way, don't we? The whole Old Testament concept of knowing God as Father never existed. God was Adonai. God was Yahweh. God was holy and righteous. But to think of God as Father... That never would have occurred to the people of Israel. And yet David is able to say at the end of the day that he delights to do the Lord's will. That the law of the Lord, rather than being a burden, is a blessing to him. And this morning, if you are here and you have this casual relationship with God to where you walk in and you do your thing and you go on, God is calling you to repent of that. But he is also calling you to see that there is so much more. When you live for him and you see the glory of God, you'll want it more and more and more and more. And you seek after him. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at veryefields.com.